We're continuing our sermon series through the lectionary this summer, and uh, we've been, over the past month or so, uh, looking at 1 Samuel, several passages from 1 Samuel. Today we'll look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, beginning with verse 34 and the verses following. But before I read that to you, I invite you once again to bow your heads and join me in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we come to you now with open hearts, hopeful to hear your word. We pray by the grace of your spirit that the words we hear and the thoughts of our hearts will lead us to your will for all of us as your church and for each of us as your children. Dear God, we love you. We thank you for your love. Amen. So again, 1 Samuel chapter 15, beginning with verse 34. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord was sorry that he had made Saul king over Israel. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Elihab and and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his outward appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've never been a very good history student, but when I was a child, I loved learning those little history stories that you learn about uh, our forefathers when you're children. Those stories like uh, George Washington when he cut down the cherry tree. As the story goes, he was about six years old and his father gave him that really shiny hatchet. And so he wanted to use it so badly, it was so beautiful. He went out to the backyard and, and started chopping down that cherry tree. And then his father later came out and found it. And he was so angry, he knew exactly what had happened. He he went up to George and said, what happened to this cherry tree? 
And George apparently said, I cannot tell a lie. It was I who cut down the cherry tree. And his father, so overwhelmed with his son's honesty, said, son, you are worth a thousand cherry trees. At least that's the way the story goes. Or maybe that story about Ben Franklin. You all remember that story about how he flew a kite in the thunderstorm and discovered electricity. That's the way it was always said in my elementary school. Actually, there's some truth to that story. He actually did go out during a thunderstorm and made a kite out of a a handkerchief, put a little wire at the top and tied a key at the bottom. And it was probably never actually struck by lightning, but the static electricity from the top wire all the way down to the key gave Ben a little shock. That's what he said when he wrote about it. Or maybe the story of Abraham Lincoln, how he was born in poverty in a log cabin in Kentucky and both of his parents, neither, neither one of them knew how to read or write. And so even though Abraham Lincoln really didn't have a, a formal education, he taught himself how to read and write and became the person that we all know and, and revere today. All of these stories that we learned as children, some of them are true, some of them maybe a little more legend than true, are stories that literary critics call origin stories. Stories about these forefathers, these great heroes of ours, stories from their childhood that teach us a little bit something about how they grew up, but also foreshadow into who they're going to be when they're adults. We have these about our forefathers. We also have these kind of stories about our, all of our other heroes, whether they're comic book heroes or whether they're our sports heroes. We hear all these kind of legends and stories about how they grew up, these events that shaped them into who they are. And there are stories like this all throughout the Bible. Some literary critics will tell you that there are origin stories all throughout the Bible about some of the, the major characters in the Bible. For instance, that story of Jacob and Esau, when, when Jacob reaches out and grabs Esau's heel as they're being born, it sort of signifies that Jacob and Esau are always going to be in conflict with each other all throughout their life. Or, or that story of Moses when he's put in the basket and set out into the river it's, and been drawn up out of the river by the, the palace of Pharaoh, the people of the palace of Pharaoh. It tells us that, that God is going to choose this wonderful person in spite of all of the, the danger in the world around him. Or maybe even the story of a little baby born in a manger in Bethlehem. It's a story that shows us that Jesus was born in humble humility and would live a life of humble humility. These origin stories are found all throughout the Bible. And as we just read today, there are three different origin stories about King David. This is just one of them I just read to you. There are two others. Next week, we'll talk about the story of of David and Goliath. That's probably the most famous origin story of David. Then there's another story we won't get to. It's the story of David playing a harp for King Saul to try to soothe his anger. And then there's this story, the story that I read to you this morning. These stories probably first were spread around like campfires and told as people were trying to teach the history of Israel to their children. But when the Bible was written down, they were all kind of put right together right here in 1 Samuel. And this origin story teaches us that King David did not come from the kind of stock that we would think would have been the king of Israel. He was an unexpected king, but it follows in that same pattern that God uses the unexpected people, the ordinary people, to do extraordinary things. As Mary just told you in the children's sermon, King King Saul had had displeased God. Somehow he had angered God by not doing the things that God wanted him to do. We talked about King Saul last week. King Saul fit the bill of what a king should be. He was big, he was strong, he was powerful. He led great armies, but he disobeyed God when God told him what God wanted him to do. And so 
God went to old Samuel once again and said, it's time for a new king. Well, Samuel didn't want a new king. Samuel was the one who anointed King Saul, kind of like a search committee who always feels responsible for the pastor who they call. He, he wasn't ready to get rid of, of King Saul quite yet, but, but it, God said, no, it's time. And so he told him to go to Bethlehem find a family there, the, the children of Jesse. And he said, just to, to give you some cover so you don't get in trouble with Saul, just go and tell them that you're, you're going to make a sacrifice to God. And so that's exactly what Samuel did. And he got there among the, the Bethlehemites and sanctified Jesse and said, come to me and introduce all your sons to me while you've got a chance. And he introduced his first son, Elihab, this big, strong, powerful man, reminded Samuel of Saul. And he said, this has to be the one. Look at this guy. This is the greatest king Israel will ever have. This has to be the one. But God whispers in his ear, he's not the one. Keep looking. Samuel protests a little bit and says, no, but he, he reminds me of Saul. And he says, no, no, no. The way that you look at the world is different than the way that I look at the world. What human beings see and what God sees are two separate things. For human beings see the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could see the world the way God sees it? If we could look at the world through the eyes of God, see people's hearts rather than just looking at people and their outward appearance and, and prejudging them the way that we just always do. We, we can't help that sometimes. We judge people based on their outward appearance. And in fact, sometimes we put up masks and put up fronts so that people won't really see what's going on inside of us. We can't help it but judge people from what is presented to us on the surface. But God's able to look right at the heart. What, how amazing it would be if we could see the heart of every person around us. I can only imagine that that would change the world. Because then we would be able to see all of those hidden treasures that are around us in the world. Those hidden talents, those hidden people that God has chosen, that God has called, and that God has lifted up. We would be able to see these wonderful, incredible people, people that we take for granted every single day that God has called. We would be able to see them and find them and lift them up and use them so that they can change the world for a better place. You know some of those people I'm talking about because time and time again, those are the people that end up changing the world, the people that we least expect. This past week, I was reading about a woman named Irina Sindler. Those of you who are, are historians of, of World War II and the Holocaust, maybe you've heard of her. But I had never heard of her before. But when I read her story, she kind of reminded me of like a, a Harriet Tubman of the Holocaust. She was uh, born in Poland. She was a Christian. And her father was a doctor in Poland who, who worked with every different type of person, no matter where they came from, no matter what their background. And in fact, he caught an illness from one of those people and died when she was young. But from her father, she learned that you love and treat everybody the same. You truly love your neighbor as yourself. And so in 1939, when the Germans invaded Poland, she knew this was not going to be good for her Jewish friends that she grew to love and know all around her there in Warsaw. And so she decided that she had to do something. She and some of her friends were working as sort of social workers at the time. And so she decided to go in and pose as a health care worker and go into the ghetto, the Warsaw ghetto, and take with her medicine and food and things that they needed to try to help these people who were, were, were in so much trouble. And when she got in there, she saw so many children there and she knew she had to do something. 
So she and her friends created this incredible network all across Poland of of homes where these children could stay, and they literally smuggled these children out of the ghetto and, and gave them different, forged different papers and gave them different names so that they could get out of the ghetto and live with these families until they could get them into Catholic orphanages all over Poland. It's said that she saved over 3,000 people from the ghetto in Warsaw. And at the end, close to the end of their life, when she was asked about the work that she did, she simply said, the people that I saved, it's not those, pe- those lives that I saved just justify my life. It's not, they don't give me glory or reward. They just justify my existence. That's who she was. She was this unassuming woman that these guards, these German soldiers, just assumed she was there to help other people. And little did they know that this unassuming woman with saving people's lives. That's what happens all around us every single day. There are people, unassuming people, that are changing the world just by living every day, doing the things that God calls them to do. And they do it without reward, and they do it without glory. They do it without any fanfare, and they do it without any value. Because for some reason, we don't realize it. They don't give us glory, or they don't give us power, or they don't give us wealth, and so we ignore them. What if, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could see those people through the eyes of God, see their hearts, see their souls, see them for who they are, and love them and value them? Wouldn't it be a different world if we valued those people rather than the people that we value? That would change the world, truly. But it would not only change the world to find those people, I think it would change the world simply by searching for those people. Not just by finding those people, but just by changing our eyes and looking at the world in a different way. That in itself would change the world. Just not by us finding those treasures out there in the world, but by us making a different pursuit. Pursuing different values. Valuing different types of people. Valuing people for their heart and not just for their outward appearance. There's a wonderful little parable I read by a wonderful preacher named Matt Helms. He's an associate pastor up in Chicago, and he tells this wonderful little parable about a monastery, a wonderful place where where monks were gathered and people loved to come make pilgrimages to this monastery to see how these monks lived and acted. And there, these visitors that came supported the monastery through their donations. But over time, the monks started to realize that the, the visitors were slowly dwindling away. They weren't coming back and back year after year. So finally, the monks started to wonder, why is this happening? Why aren't people coming to our monastery anymore? That's when Brother Francis said, well, Brother Lawrence, it's probably because you snore so loudly during worship. You're asleep all the time, and it's like a buzzsaw. It sounds terrible in here. And Brother Lawrence said, well, Brother Francis, it's probably because your prayers go on forever. I can't help but fall asleep. And then another monk said, well, it's not that at all. It's because the food is terrible. If we could just get Brother Joseph to learn how to cook a little bit better, these people would, would want to eat here and they would come here more often. And the bickering and, the, and it started and, and they, the monks continued to get angry with each other until finally more and more visitors left and stopped coming. Finally, the monks got a, a letter from the archbishop saying he was coming to see what was going on, to discover what was going on here and why nobody was coming to the monastery anymore. The archbishop came and for a few days the monks were on their best behavior, but then finally some of the, the bickering started. One of the monks said, I'm so sorry about the food. Brother Joseph still needs to learn how to cook. And everything exploded. 
All of the monks started criticizing each other right there in front of the archbishop. The archbishop left after uh, viewing everything that was happening at the community. He left and said, I'll send you a letter with my report. A few days later, they Later, they got a letter in the mail from the archbishop, and he said, when I, I came to your community, I was so worried because I had heard of all the bitterness and strife. But imagine how wonderfully surprised I was when I discovered that right in your midst, right in the midst of you, the risen Christ was living among you in your community. God be with you, for God is with you. Well, all of the monks read this letter and thought, which one of us is the risen Christ? The risen Christ is here among us. Which one of us is the risen Christ? And so all of a sudden things started to change a little bit about in there. They said, well, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't complain too much about Brother Joseph's food. After all, he might be the risen Christ. Or maybe we shouldn't complain too much about the long prayers of Brother Francis. Maybe all of us are supposed to be praying that way. After all, he might be the risen Christ. Or maybe we shouldn't pray, complain too much about Brother Lawrence's snoring. After all, maybe he has a clear conscience. That's why he sleeps in worship. After all, he's the risen Christ. They started to treat each other differently because they didn't know which one of them could be Christ incarnate there with them. And suddenly... By treating each other differently, visitors started to come back. They just started to hear once again about how wonderful this community was, all because they were treating each other as if God was with them. Wouldn't the world change if we started to look at each other through the eyes of God? If we started to wonder, is King David right here among us? Wouldn't the world change if maybe better yet, we started to ask ourselves, is Jesus Christ right here among us? How many of us would go to Manon Meridian this next week if, if we knew that driving in one of those cars and receiving one of those bags of food was going to be the risen Christ? How many of us would treat each other differently if we knew right here in our church, right here among us, was the risen Christ? How many of us would treat our enemies differently across town in good parts of town or bad parts of town if we knew that somewhere out there the risen Christ was living right here among us? If we chose to look at the world, not from that outward appearance, but that maybe, just maybe, living among us was the heart of God. I dare say that might change the world. I dare say... That's why people like Irene Sindler and, and others like that are able to change the world because they look at the world through the eyes of the God who loves us. Well, I can't promise you that the next King David is sitting here in these pews today. I can't promise you that the risen Christ is sitting out here among us. But then again, you never can be too careful. Maybe we should start treating each other like that. Maybe we should start treating those people out in the world like that. I truly believe that would change the world. The world would start to look differently. Not just because we find King David, but because we're looking at the world differently. To the glory of God. Amen.